You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with uh, Philip Delves-Broughton, who is the author of a bunch of books. I guess your first book was called Ahead of the Curve, which you wrote not long after completing your MBA at Harvard Business School. And then we have this book, The Art of the Sale, Learning from the Masters About the Business of Life, and more recently, How to Think Like an Entrepreneur. Welcome, Philip. Thanks very much. You're a journalist before you went to business school, and you've been a journalist kind of since you got out of business school. And there's not a lot of journalists that have been to business school. So part of what I want to talk about is kind of your unique perspective on business school and kind of its relevance to modern society. But I also kind of want to talk more generally about the extent to which there might be a disconnect between kind of journalism and business. I mean, we have business journalists, but it's it's not clear that those journalists have had either experience in the world of business education or in the world of business more generally. So maybe we can start off by saying, for those who haven't read the book Ahead of the Curve, like why, whatever inspired you as a journalist to go back to business school of all places? Well, that's the, that's a million dollar question. Um, so I was, I'd been a foreign correspondent for about seven years when I decided to go. I'd been in uh, for a British newspaper called the Daily Telegraph. I've been in New York for four years and I, you know, the last thing I covered was 9-11. And then I was in Paris uh, for about two or three years and covered presidential elections, traveled all over Europe. I was having a great time. It was a time when there was an enormous amount of, sort of terrorism going on. So I remember I covered the Madrid train bombings. I was in London when uh, bombs went off on buses. It was just, a, it was a very sort of dark time to be a reporter that sort of period 2001, 2004 and the kind of beats I was covering. I'd got married, I'd had a young child. There was this thing called the internet coming and the prospect of future for newspapers was looking pretty grim. Um, and so I was looking down the path of my career and thinking, you know, I'm not sure there's 30 years in this business. And I was, you know, uh, a man of 29, 30, 31 at that time. And I'd always been curious about business. I'd actually taken the GMAT when I was in New York, when I was about 27, 28, just kind of for the hell of it, to have it in my back pocket. You know, I came from a family. Uh, my father was a Church of England minister, a priest. Uh, my mother was Burmese immigrant to the UK. Her family had had businesses in Burma. My mother was entrepreneurial. She used to buy and sell houses. So I was sort of curious. And I can, in very sort of simple psychotherapeutic terms, you know, a father who's a vicar, a mother who's an entrepreneur. So I was a little um, split on the idea of, um, you know, virtue and capitalism and money and God and all these things. But anyway, I got to a point where I thought it was time to scratch that itch. I was at the sort of outer reaches of kind of age. I was 31, 32, I think when I applied, I thought I can't really wait for this much longer if I'm gonna go do this. I wanted to come back to America and have something other than having been an ex-journalist on my uh, resume. And so I applied to a bunch of schools, Harvard accepted me, and off I went really with the, with the notion that I would go into business and make some money, support my family uh, and have a 30 year career that's different from journalism. That's not really how it panned out. That was my plan. Well, I mean, you know, they say that the business of America is business, right? And one of the things that really shocked me at the beginning of your book, which I recently reread, was that the number of MBAs in the United States was only about 6,000 
back in 1960 or something like that. Was it the number? 5,000. 1960, there were 5,000 MBAs, which to me is absolutely crazy. I mean, my father got an MBA in 1950 or so. So the number was presumably even even smaller. And now, I mean, well, at least as of 2000, it was 100,000. I don't know what the number is now, but it's got to be even bigger. And, you know, I think of maybe it's just a inside view or self-inflated view of the importance of business school. But a lot of us in the business school, we think that the business schools don't just teach business. You know, they teach common sense. They teach decision-making. If you listen to deans of business schools, they think that everybody should go to a business school, right? You know, if you're going to be a minister, you should go to a business school. If you're going to be running an NGO, you should go to business school. If you're going to be president of the United States, you should go to business school. Have business schools kind of become, in some sense, the finishing school for anybody, if you want to be important, if you want to accomplish things, if you, if you want to be relevant, I mean, does it have a body of knowledge that is kind of, you know, more universal than most people think? Or is it kind of still, you know, just finance and blah, blah, blah? Well, I think the, the paradox of it is, yes, of course, Dean say this, because um, if it was so valuable, it might be cheaper. I don't know if that makes economic sense. I suppose it's valuable more expensive. This is not a cheap qualification that these people are saying is essential that everyone has, right? But to be fair, neither is an undergraduate degree, right? Neither is an undergraduate. You could question question the value of that as well. Um, So who is is insisting on these enormously expensive qualifications? Who is telling our young that they must run up these enormous costs and their parents must run up these costs in order to be somehow viable as adults? That's an interesting question. Now, I don't doubt that, you know, education is enormously valuable. I don't doubt that the things you learn in these places are enormously valuable. Question for the American system is why the hell does it have to cost so much? Why can't there be a way, uh, if you value these, the roles of these people uh, fulfill in society, why can't you make it a little easier for them to acquire these qualifications? So there's that issue. There's also the issue of, um, you know, does the study of business really have a place in the academy? in the university academy. And again, you know, that's, a, that's always a live question because, you know, the business world is full of people who've never been near a business. The business world is full of you know, billionaires. The most successful people in business never been near a business. That is not the case in medicine. And there's, and there's plenty of academics that have never been near, near a business. Right. So right. there's something a little hokey about the whole system. You know, what is this pantomime that's being put on in which the people who are best at it don't go and the people who are teaching it have never done it. So, you know, again, that's not the case in law school or medical school generally. The top professors at Harvard Law School are also the people you hire when you want to wrestle the presidency from uh, your opponent uh, or whatever it happens to be. Uh, Great surgeons teach at medical schools. Bill Gates, to my knowledge, has not volunteered to teach at the University of Washington Business School. Maybe he's attended once or twice. The founders of Google, Zuckerberg, I mean, all these, I mean, you go on and on. So, you know, what is it? Is common sense a graduate degree? And I'm not sure it is. Uh, Yes, finance, sure. But all these other things that they say are invaluable, um, I think you learn out in the real world. You know, would you be better off just having accounting degrees? Uh, would you be having CFAs? I mean, there are plenty of qualifications that are required out there in the real world that um, the MBA is just a pale shadow of. You know, you just offer a few sort of light versions of accounting qualifications, finance qualifications, legal qualifications. You get the kind of diet version all bundled together in an MBA. Now, that's my you know, attack on the MBA. And there's plenty of good things you do learn and you meet people, you network, um, you signal powerfully to the market this is something you're interested in. It's very true that, you know, if you're a bishop in charge of the Episcopal Church of America, it might be useful to have some organizational and decision-making skills apart from your Episcopal knowledge. 
I did have a priest in my uh, MBA program the last year. Uh, yeah, I know. There's plenty to learn. In fact, I think the head of the Jesuits in America was an MBA. That would make a lot of sense. Jesuits are, you know, enormously um, kind of worldly sector of the Catholic Church. You know, both as missionaries, builders of schools, universities, they they get things done. The Jesuits. It doesn't surprise me at all if they'd uh, MBAs would pop up. There were lots of Mormons when I was at business school. Mitt Romney, I think, is the most sort of famous Harvard MBA Mormon. And I think again, it goes to the the idea that um, you know, living well organized lives is not necessarily apart from leading a, a spiritual life. You know, leading a uh, a life that's successful in business is not necessarily divorced from leading a, a religious life. So, you know, that's very true. But I think there's there's lots of sort of questions still to be asked about the MBA, about the cost of it, the intellectual validity of it, the utility of it. And I think on the downside, you know, does it actually engender a negative groupthink, a kind of unwarranted arrogance in a certain part of business that maybe you don't see in other parts of the world where this particular culture has not taken hold? Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of conflicted on this in the sense that, you know, when you go to a hospital, you think, gosh, wouldn't it be great if there were some MBAs in here to kind of run this place a little better? You know, having doctors run it might not be best or law firms, architectural right. firms. I'm horrified to tell you, I'm sure hospital groups are run by MBAs. Yeah, well, that's, what they're getting that, that, is the output of their brilliant decision making. Yeah, well, that, that's what makes me a little conflicted about it, right? Especially in the world of journalism. So journalism, you might say, well, you know, it'd be great to have some MBAs in there, right? Because traditionally, journalists would rise through the ranks and then they would run the newspapers and so forth. But in another sense, I think that's really what, what has happened, right? I mean, journalism is now kind of run much more along business lines, and, and I'm not sure that that has had positive results. I mean, you were trying to kind of escape journalism in a way, and, but you, you kind of never did escape journalism, right? You're still involved in, in the world of, of journalism. And do you think that running a newspaper like a business necessarily kind of undermines the, the ethics and integrity of journalists? Well, I think we'll sort of slightly barking up, the wrong, barking up the wrong tree. What changed was the business model. So, you know, Warren Buffett used to describe owning a paper in Buffalo, which I think is where he owned one, as like owning the toll bridge, right? So if you wanted to sell mattresses in Buffalo, you had to pay the Buffalo advertiser or whatever it's called. Um, if you want to sell cars, if you want to sell real estate, if you want to sell blenders, you know, you had to buy an ad in the paper. Newspapers were enormously, you know, that's why the Pulitzers and Hearst's Citizen Kane in the Orson Welles film, he was a newspaper owner. Uh, Rupert Murdoch came up through the ranks of newspaper owner. They were the tech titans of their day because in the same way they had, that's where all the advertising money went. Newspapers were the internet of their day, right? So that changed dramatically. So you're saying if newspapers were run by business people, well, historically they were when there was money in them. The moment the money left, so did a lot of the most talented business people. And, you know, they went to Silicon Valley or they went where the advertising revenue was going. So since you have a lot of newspapers, I mean, there was a huge shift. I think there was a shift to the local newspaper industry got completely gutted. You've seen private equity funds, hedge funds go in there. And essentially they've pursued the same model, which is, you know, you rip the last of what's there out and you kind of, it's the sort of cigar butt operations. You take the last of that advertising money out. And that's the kind of desperation of things like the Chicago Tribune group, a lot of local papers. But on the other hand, papers like the New York Times, and the Journal, uh, the FT have made this transition to kind of global markets of readership. They've shifted their advertising to a digital model. They've gone along in sort of conference business. They're very different businesses today to the ones that were. So yeah, you have seen this massive reallocation of resources. I'm not sure any MBA could have stood 
in the middle of that oncoming rush and change that trajectory. But you have interesting organizations like ProPublica that do um, investigative reporting that's essentially a nonprofit model. You know, so MBA is not the, the solution to the end of the newspaper business. That's not to say they can't be hugely significant and creative in running businesses that have fundamentally sound business models, but newspapers, local newspapers in particular, cease mm -hmm. to be that about 20 years ago. Well, I mean, I guess the question is, do business schools primarily equip people with the means to better achieve their goals or do business schools necessarily kind of change the goals of the people once they're there? I mean, one of the criticisms of business schools is that, you know, they turn people into, I don't know, selfish, greedy, you know, arrogant folks. I mean, did you feel there was some kind of pressure to change your objectives in some way when, when you were there? Do you think that that happens? I think you're getting people when they're in their sort of mid twenties, late twenties. I mean, they're pretty much hard. They're formed by that point, or they should be. If they're not, then they're very vulnerable. But I think most people are, you know, there are plenty of people there who want to make money. You know, they want to do well. They want to go to Wall Street. They want to trade. They want to set up real estate firms. I mean, you know, they do want to make money and that's, that's no bad thing. I mean, they can do good things. They could build great, healthy businesses, create jobs, be generous with their money. You know, greed may not be good, but it's not necessarily all bad if it's properly directed. So that doesn't really bother me so much. You know, where it gets murky is, is where you, where you think about, you know, the actual ethics of the process of making, you know, money, the role of business and society, the mores it sets, the, the examples it sets. You know, one, there was a comment I remember when, uh, you know, I left in 2006, and I guess you have the financial crisis in 2008. And then Dean of Harvard Business School, widely liked man, but he said this thing that absolutely drove me insane, which was of the financial crisis. He said, there's plenty of blame to go around. And I, you know, I remember listening to that and thinking, you know, actually it's not, it shouldn't be going around all over the place. There's, there's a set of behaviors. There was a set of habits. There were a set of incentives created. Business is a pyramid. And at the top of it says a certain group of people, you know, what they do, how they act is determinative of the way the economy grows and goes and grows. And I think you can't shift that responsibility and that group of people have been claiming ever more and more of that power, whether it's through the, um, the collapse of unions, the, uh, the sort of drift to the, the sort of left in America has almost sort of vanished in terms of its influence and power. So much power has been claimed by the private sector. The, the requirement that people essentially direct their own pensions, manage their own healthcare, all these things, if you go and live in you know, Scandinavia, would be completely shocking. You know, where has that power gone to? It's gone into the private sector. And the private sector has claimed all of this responsibility, claimed a lot of profit. And yet when asked to stand up and be counted, slightly dodges. And I think that's the problem. It's not about greed in itself. It's about willingness to take responsibility for what you're up to. Well, you, you recount how when you were there, Jack Welch came and he was one of many speakers who came in and they had a message which was that forget about government, right? Focus on business. But at the time when you were there, the president of the United States was a Harvard Business School alum, right? You know, George Bush. So do you think, I mean, people who are the folks who go to business school, those people who aspire to success, they've given up on the public sector. I mean, there used to be a, a model where people could work in the public sector and then rotate into business, or maybe they'd be successful in business and then kind of rotate into the private sector. And of course, we still see plenty of this, but it doesn't seem to be the ambition of a lot of the young people who go to business schools. 
Well, I, yeah, it's not the ambition. I guess I guess you have to look at the output, right? You, you're absolutely right. There are a lot of good people who go back and forth. Mitt Romney's name came up earlier. You know, there's a man who set up Bain Capital. You know, he's now the senator from Utah. He was a you know governor. He's done lots of run for president. You know, Mike Bloomberg was in many ways the model of what a Harvard Business School graduate could be. You know, a man who set up a world-beating business, the only great tech firm formed on the East Coast, um, the only great tech fortune of the East Coast. And you know, then a three-term mayor, uh, given enormous amounts of money away in very thoughtful and um, impactful ways. Yeah, you know, a great example there. But yes, you do have to ask yourself, is the best talent going into government in a substantive enough way? Now, it's one thing for great people to go and spend two years in the White House, but that's not the same as spending 25 years in the Department of Commerce. It's not the same as going being a State Department official, uh, all these kinds of things. So again, to your point, all these business school deans saying everyone should get an MBA. Yeah, but then if people come out of it, can't afford to actually go into public service, then what exactly are you saying? The Jack Welch point about, you know, trust business rather than government. I mean, I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but um, look what happened to GE in the post-Jack Welch years. Again, it wasn't all his fault. But if the American government looked like GE over the past 30 or 40 years, we'd be in terrible shape. So it's, it's, it's a bogus, arrogant argument. Could only be made by someone, you know, who's landing his private jet on Nantucket. Well, in your book on sales, you actually reference a couple of folks who you wouldn't normally think of as salespeople. I mean, you mentioned the Dalai Lama, right? And you mentioned Nelson Mandela. And I think it was in the entrepreneurship book, you talk about kind of Obama as a, as a political entrepreneur. That book on sales, I found it fascinating when I first read it because it had never occurred to me that sales is a topic that we don't really teach. I mean, we academics, we leave it to the Tony Robbins's of the world, right? I mean, it's almost like a, something that leaves a bad taste in your mouth. I mean, it's P.T. Barnum, right? I mean, it's, the, it's Ron Popeil. I mean, you, you, inter, you, you, you interviewed and talk about all these folks. Dale Carnegie, no one ever assigns Dale Carnegie as a textbook in a business school. Now, my grandfather, he was friends with Dale Carnegie and he started his own, he was the head of sales for Hoover vacuum cleaners. And at the time they had a door-to-door you know, salespeople and so forth. And, and then after being head of sales, he went and created his own kind of sales training institute, kind of like Dale Carnegie's. And that's the sort of thing which I think most business people and business academics kind of look down on. But at the end of the day, companies rely on salespeople. Why, why do you think sales has such a sort of, well, I can't say it has a bad rap. It only has a bad rap among certain people. Among ordinary people in the United States, sales is is kind of the religion of America. I mean, I said business is the business of America. I mean, like sales is really more like the religion of of America. And these these sales oriented organizations like Amway, as you point out in the book, I mean, they're almost like religious organizations, and they've taken their their cues from the evangelicals in terms of how they go out and acquire new recruits. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, my father was a missionary. Uh, the work of a missionary is to convert. Um, Salesperson. <laughs> there you go. Sell, selling, um, selling religion selling to the heathen, right? Church of England, you know, in a, in a Muslim country, which was challenging to say the least. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're exactly right. I mean, people are squeamish about sales. And again, I, I think I said in that book is I, Peter Drucker, you know, the great management guru said, you know, all businesses, you create a product and sell it and the rest is detail. And in many ways, he's right. You know, all the lawyers and accountants who pile in saying, well, you've got to fill out this form and that form. They depend on someone having a product and the ability to persuade other people to buy it. That's what it's all about. And yet there is fundamentally this squeamishness that sales is somehow about deceit. I think it's very interesting that culturally 
you know, when artists approach the world of business, they often describe salespeople. So we think about, you know, death of a salesman, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, these famous depictions of business are all about salespeople. American Beauty, you know, uh, is it Annette Benning who plays a real estate saleswoman, sort of standing in the mirror, staring at herself. It's both that kind of the desperation to achieve the dream it comes alive in that sales process, the kind of the, the brutal relentlessness of it, the, the hotel rooms, the loneliness, the abandonment of your family, the, the way that if you don't sell, you don't get compensated and you've got to go home and tell your family, I didn't make any money today. That, that's just incredibly depleting and in you know, an awful state of affairs. And yet it's very present in American drama, in film, in books. Salespeople are very dramatic characters. It's very life or death. And I think, you know, a lot of smart people like to think they're sort of too good for sales. So you'll hear people say this thing is like, you know, you know, I'm not very good at selling. And, and they expect to be regarded as virtuous for that because it suggests that you're honest, you're too honest to sell, um, that sales is a form of kind of deceit. I think there's a lot of that in the culture and a lot of that certainly the higher up you get. But then of course, you know, as I say in the book, it's like all politicians, salespeople, you know, a campaign, I mean, that very term, there are two uses of the word campaign, either it's a military campaign or a political campaign, but the political campaign is all selling. It's relentless selling. It's retail politics, they call it, the glad handing. And yet we don't really think about presidents as, or if we do think of them as salesmen, again, it's belittling. You know, it was a term often used about Bill Clinton, you know, slick willy, you know, the slickness was his salesmanship, right? No one have called George H.W. Bush a great salesman. Reagan was perhaps a you know, great communicator. Obama was a terrific and relentless salesman, a, a peddler of a message uh, of change. You know, the Dalai Lama, you know, if you read about him, he's an artificial creation in many ways. When he left Tibet, he was a scholarly monk speaking the Tibetan equivalent of Latin. You know, he learned English. Richard Gere did not want to have, have anything to do with the 1963 version of the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama, who now attracts crowds in Central Park, speaking about happiness, about meditation. You know, he's hit on a zeitgeist and he's very popular. Mandela learned Afrikaans so he could get on with the, his prison warders. And when he came out, he made it his mission not to scare the whites who had been terrified of him. Process of reconciliation in, in South Africa depended on the whites transitioning power and not being terrified of the prospect of what would happen next. And Mandela created that bridge and that was an act of salesmanship. And that's no bad thing. So I think trying to think about sales like that is very important. That doesn't mean that there aren't all kinds of nefarious things that goes on in the credit card industry or the, the low end of the real estate industry or the car sales industry or whatever it is, but sales done properly with a proper mission uh, with some kind of integrity is nothing more than a recognition of how to communicate to people and how to understand their desires, their fears, speak to them and, you know, toggle them with your own. And that's, that's not a, a vicious activity. Well, I mean, it's, it seems though that even the best salespeople will concede that there is kind of an element of, I don't know, deceit that you have to have, but you know, you must use in moderate quantities. I mean, P.T. Barnum, he was sort of the classic confidence man. I mean, he kind of justified it. He said, well, yeah, of course, you know, I'm going to have this mermaid that's might be fake, but you know, the ends justify the means. I'm, I'm going to enlighten people about all sorts of real things. And if I have to do a little bit of this chicanery along the way, you know, that's fine. Well, of course, ends justify the means is never, a, never an argument. Well, it sort of can be, I suppose, but uh, it's always you should, you know, flares should go up on that one. Yeah, there is an element. I mean, there can be an element. I mean, again, I, I use the example of Hannibal Lecter, you know, Silence of the Lambs as sort of ultimate salesperson. So if you remember the movie, but, you know, he has enormously 
uh, sophisticated abilities to understand people. So, you know, high levels of understanding. What he doesn't have is any constraints on his um, willingness to exploit what he's learned. So if you or I, you know, Gray, if you, if you learned about me that, you know, I was terrified of spiders, you would say, oh, but I'm so sorry, is it, you know, whereas if you're Hannibal Lecter, you would immediately send a box full of spiders to my house and, and scare the hell out of me, which is what he does to Clarice in that film. Now that's what a salesman can do at their worst. They're sitting there really understanding you, being your best friend, and then using that information for their interests and not yours. But a really good salesman, a really honest one, will, having understood what you need, will actually serve you up a product at a price that actually meets your need and doesn't use that information for their own purposes. And that's, that's where the whole difficulty lies in terms of the person-to-person -person transaction. Now, there are other things about, you know, these boiler rooms that are set up, the way human beings treat in those areas, you know, the, the pressure to meet quarterly targets, and so sales incentives, the cultures of these sales organizations that can be deeply toxic and deeply harmful to individuals and deeply suffocating. That's a separate issue from that interpersonal transaction that can often, so often be exploited by a corrupt sales. Well, but this idea of sales, I mean, it, it's more pervasive than just simply selling a product. I mean, I think part of the point you're making is that, you know, in America, you can't avoid being a salesperson, right? If you want to ascend to the corporate ladder, you know, you have to more or less be in selling mode. If you want to survive in any capacity, you know, you have to have these underlying attributes of confidence and resiliency and so forth. I think that's particularly true in the United States where you can't just expect automatic promotion or automatic kind of escalation as part of some hierarchical or, I mean, there are some where, you know, you do your three years and you get promoted and then you do your next three years and get promoted. I mean, in the United States, at least, you know, you have to always be kind of on the hustle to some degree. And, and I think that's why sales and self-help are more or less conflated in the popular imagination, right? I mean, all these self-help books, all of these self-help seminars, all of the, the books that are targeting people who are frustrated in their career and their life. I mean, it, they're really just using the sales playbook, right? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, you live, well, I do, I do I'm a US citizen. We live in a, a brutally competitive society. You know, what can I tell you? This is not Denmark. This is not Sweden. There is, you know, the safety net is, is riddled with holes uh, against this point of who sets the standard, who sets the expectations. You know, if you've got a, a world where people are living to the expectations of sales organizations, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a dark world indeed. Yes, the self-help culture is, of course, yeah, very much built around this idea of there is an ideal person who is the product of a lot of these sales and self-help books. It's someone who is, you know, gets up early in the morning, exercises, brushes their teeth, puts on a clean shirt, goes to work, you know, has this kind of eager beaver mentality, you know, wants certain things in life, which is perhaps antithetical to someone you might find in a university faculty. Again, to go back to the point of MBAs, is like you have a system with tenure, which again is, is completely hostile to the notion of most businesses. So, you know, that's point number 17 about why business schools might be questionable in some way. But tenure and sales and constant quarterly achievement are two ideas of complete polar opposites. And it is, it is brutal. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt about it. It is cruel. The expense of a Tony Robbins course you know, why are people willing to spend the money on those things? Because they're hoping the rewards of a five or $10,000 weekend with the master will, um, you know, outstrip the cost. Yeah, you know, when you look, stand back and look at it from afar, 
people cheering and screaming and validating themselves and walking across hot coals so they can become better car salespeople. Yes, there's some measure of insanity about it, but richest country in the world and all that, Greg. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, it does seem like there's, on the one hand, the, the Dale Carnegie vision, which I think folks like you know Warren Buffett will eagerly sign up for. And then there's the Willie Loman vision, right? Which is maybe one that the more self-reflective or artistic folks embrace. But, but I think all of us appreciate both of those viewpoints, right? I mean, even the most successful salespeople can presumably appreciate that Willie Loman perspective, right? I'm sure a lot of them have been through it. But the question is, what do we do for the Willie Lomans? That's the issue. We know that there are a lot of people for whom this is not, this is never going to work. You know, what happens to them? Where do they go? What is left for them in this society? So when you, when you interviewed these folks who were, you know, selling the, the mops and the, <laughs> that was the infomercial guys, I mean, I don't know whether you intended to, but certainly it was clear that you had a great deal of uh, appreciation and respect for kind of what they were doing. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, I love salespeople. So yes, we went to the infomercial studios. We saw the, 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 these mops where they, you know, they dip them in diet Coke that's all over your floor with one twist, up it comes, all gone. It was a sort of very cheerful English salesman who had a beautiful house down in Tampa. Yet there is a massive enthusiasm and kind of zest for life for these people. You know, there's all these gimmicks. There's a, there's a whole world of inventors who are, you know, whose dream one day is to have their invention be taken on as an infomercial something that peels your apple better or, you know, cleans your floor faster or chops your vegetables better or blends your smoothies or gives you six minute, four minute, two minute, 30 second abs, whatever it is, you know, there's, there's a whole world of people who are hoping to sell this stuff. And, I, and that's, that is wonderful. It's very energizing. My God, it's the opposite of, you know, the big corporate consumer packaged goods innovation hub where, you know, there's, there's sort of a hundred PhDs all struggling to reinvent toilet paper for six years and then there's a marketing plan and, you know, all these things. This is the opposite end of things. And um, it's very inspiring. These are people often without that sort of high level of education. You know, everything they have is they've created for themselves. There's actually a feel of more honesty about it. You know, I would say that being sold something by an MBA is a more distasteful experience than being sold something by someone at sort of 11 p.m. on the QVC channel, uh, where you see the thing being chopped and diced. It's not being hidden behind reams of spreadsheets. It's not being buried in some long document that you take and accept. There's something very transparent about that world of infomercials, products, and selling, which I absolutely love. And it is, it is very inspiring. I will sometimes buy this crap purely out of kind of appreciation for the entertainment. I can imagine you have a room full of this. You have like a collection, <laughs> the Ginsu knives and the, you know, the, the chamois and all this stuff. Yeah, no, I love, I love these things. And I love the people who sell them because again, I think that, um, you know, I went to Japan and met these life insurance saleswomen. You know, and that's a really interesting story that because so Japan life insurance is actually more expensive than it is in this country because they still sustain this whole network of women who go door to door. And the history of that is after the Second World War, when so many Japanese men have been killed, they were looking for jobs for, you know, the mothers and the insurance companies, which are these enormous sort of reservoirs of capital in Japan, hired women in the communities to sell life insurance and they still do. And they are you know, extraordinary characters. You know, I came back with a little bag full of tie pins and things I'd been given by all these women as I went around interviewing them. Yeah, they're wonderful, wonderful characters. And in many ways, they are the sort of pulse of, you know, a free market. They have a very clear objective, which is to make it originally, they were widows. They would make a living, support their families. 
they were selling a product that felt important at the time. And, um, yeah, there's no guys playing golf and eating a steak and selling each other crappy financial products about this. This is very pure in that sense. And I like that. My grandfather, I think he would, when he was selling vacuum cleaners, they would go to the person's house and, and, you know, once kind of they got their way into the front door, they'd dump some dirt on the rug, you know, and then, and then hoover it up. And that was sort of how they made their sale. I'm not sure that the dumping of the, the dirt was consented to by the, <laughs> by the prospect, but apparently it was a very effective selling strategy. No, I think, I think there's a, there is a view of a lot of these things that these are games between consenting adults in a, in a capitalist economy. You know, you're trying to sell me your thing and I'm either trying not to buy it or, or seeing, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And when it's like that, I think that, you know, sort of all is fair in love and capitalism. It's when things aren't like that, that it gets very, very dark. Well, I think the the characteristic that predicts successful sales, you mentioned in the book, is a capacity to deal with failure. A lot of these workshops, right? A lot of these sales training programs are really about helping people to become kind of comfortable with failure. And it's unclear the effectiveness of these programs, but clearly those folks who have that capacity to deal with failure are going to be more successful in sales, but they're also going to be more successful in other areas of life, right? So in your book, uh, How to Think Like an Entrepreneur, you talk about some of the characteristics of successful entrepreneurs and it boils down to this kind of resilience and, and persistence. I mean, it was unclear from the book the extent to which you thought that these characteristics were ones that were made or you know, you're either born with them or, you know, you can acquire them through life, right? Can, say, business education make people more resilient? Can it make people more comfortable no. with failure? I mean, you, you well, you mentioned this. Well, but you're talking about an MBA. An MBA does nothing for those traits. Okay. An MBA, any more than, you know, studying French at high school, you know, develops, you know, your understanding of international affairs. You know, I mean, it's just, when I mean, you're sitting in a classroom studying these things, you don't learn anything about, you know, human experience. It'd be like saying, you know, do, do, do I learn you know, about uh, warfare by sitting and watching a bridge too far. No, no. the experience of warfare. No, I, I'm just watching it. You know, I think we, we live in this time. Failure has almost become this sort of, there's a failure industry. Um, everyone's always talking endlessly about the importance of failure. And I'm slightly sick of hearing about it because, you know, there's failure and failure. I, I'm sure you know people for whom failure is, is completely devastating. And it's no good saying they lack resilience. Something catastrophic has happened in their life business gone down, a you know, family has been lost, uh, you know, whatever it is. So being able to cope with adversity. And people often speak about these things in a similar way. You know, it's like, oh, you know, when you're, when you're doing a startup, you've really got to deal with adversity. You? What kind of adversity are you talking about? You know, someone empties the beer fridge on a Friday night, or is it that, you know, well, what is, what is the thing that you're talking about? Well, to be fair, I mean, for some people, just asking somebody to buy something and having that person slam the door in their face that can be incredibly discouraging, right? I mean, certainly it's not the same as losing a loved one, but it- It's of a completely different order. Yeah. So failure is, is, is a very blunt word that doesn't really cover the sheer spectrum of things we're talking yeah, about. Yeah. You know, the failure that Willie Loman experiences in death of a, I mean, mm. it's, it's the death of a salesman, right? It's the yeah. failure. That's where <laughs> that failure leads to. Okay. And that's very different from, you know, having a couple of deals go south and, you know, having nine out of your 10 calls rejected. Now, the ability to deal with uh, failure in sales, there's lots of ways you can spin that that aren't existential. It's simply about understanding the odds of what you're doing. So, you know, if it's like you want to make 100 calls to get one, okay, don't be disheartened on the 68th. You need someone to tell you that. 
And that's just, you know, that requires hours on the couch. That's just math. And then you have to figure that one out. Yes, being told no by people endlessly. Again, you have to understand it's not personal. It's like maybe your product's wrong. You have to go back and fix that. And being able to deal with those kinds of practical things, you know, yes, you do, you know, you can have people to coach you through that. I was just watching the Derek Jeter documentary that's just come out on Apple. And he talks about his first two years. You know, he was first top high school draft. And then he had to go play in like the minor leagues. And his first year was a disaster and he couldn't hit. He wasn't fielding. And he, of course, been this, you know, complete stud all the way through high school. And now he's failing in the Yankee farm system. And he talks about the first year just being this terrible failure and how he learned from it. But the truth of it was, he wasn't like banished from the Yankee. I mean, he was helped to become who he became. It was just a question of learning the craft of, you know, being a major league player and eventually getting there. And of course, you're going to make mistakes and trip up and it's like learning anything. So I think you have to kind of divorce the accumulation of the skill of selling and maybe the sort of thickening of the skin around it from some kind of existential rejection of yourself or the sort of ability to deal with cataclysmic failure. Because again, I, you know, we have to sort of get this right, the kind of nature of the failure we're talking about here and be very specific about it. Because otherwise I think it's very, it becomes sort of very hollow and meaningless term. So yes, you have to deal with being rejected, being turned around, being told to go, go do that again. You have to deal with quarterly pressures. You have to learn not to take things personally. You have to kind of think about what's going on in the other person's mind. You have to understand what's going on in their day, not just focus on yourself. And all those things I think you can learn. You can only learn in the field. You cannot learn them in a classroom, which perhaps is one of the reasons sales are taught at business school, because this is one area where you can learn models, you can learn processes, you can learn scripts, you can learn you know, persuasion, but you cannot learn 5 p.m., 10 rejections, you're sitting in Des Moines, 2,000 miles from home, you know, wishing you were back. Uh, that experience can only be experienced. Well, we may not have classes in sales, but we do have classes in entrepreneurship, and you have some thoughts on that. But if we think about the typical business school experience, I mean, even those small failures, I'm, I'm not sure that business schools, at least today, even get people comfortable with them. You know, perhaps when you were in business school, which is 16 years ago or so, there may have been a little bit more of this, but you know, my experience is that students don't want to be told that they're wrong. <laughs> they certainly don't want to get an A minus, you know, like they've gone through life stepping from success to success to success, being at the top of their class and so forth and getting all good grades and accomplishing this and accomplishing that. And that's what's on their CV. And then when they get to business school, right, you know, they just want to keep stepping from success to success. And I'm not sure that they're really interested in, I don't know, being told that their arguments are deficient or that <laughs> their beliefs are, are weak or inconsistent. Part of the job, of course, if it, we have this phrase at my business school at Haas, which is confidence without attitude. And so the, the goal is to like simultaneously somehow ratchet up people's confidence and their humility at the same time, right? Which is, you know, it's it sounds hard and it is hard. To what extent can you, in that environment, do both of those things, right? Provide people with the confidence that they need to overcome obstacles while at the same time giving them enough humility to see the see their weak spots and their weak links? Well, it's, I mean, that's a vast question. It's like, is that the job of a graduate school in business to essentially be reconfiguring the personalities of the people who enter your school. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's a character question, right? I mean, you know, we don't use that word. We never talk about it. If you're providing a good education in the subjects, which people have come to learn, 
that should render them confident, right? The reason you wouldn't be confident coming out of Haas is if you felt that you hadn't learned anything and the world didn't want you. You'd just gone and spent your $150,000 or whatever it costs to go to Haas these days, and you were coming out of it with nothing. If you're coming out of that still incredibly confident, then perhaps you had a particular personality that maybe didn't need Haas in the first place. So, you know, I, I don't know whether the Haas can be the, the modulator on confidence and humility. Now, should a business school on the humility side of it, should you be telling people Haas is not the Willy Wonka golden ticket to, you know, billions? Because it obviously isn't. It's a ticket to something, but it's maybe not the ticket to, you know, world supremacy. It's the ticket to a better career in business than perhaps the one you might have had without going to Haas. You know, I think there's an enormous amount of language that you hear in not just, in, you know, business schools. I mean, I always see those commencements and people who get up and give these great speeches. I'd scrap those. If, you know, if, <laughs> the idea that, you know, this, this enormous sort of propaganda around, you know, what people are capable of achieving, the greatness that waits for them, the, you know, all this kind of nonsense. Life is perhaps a more mundane experience. So I think there's all kinds of ways that you could attack that particular problem. But confidence will come from a good education. The humility from, will be come from not being sold a bill of goods, I think. As to whether or not they can take getting a B rather than an A, again, I'm not sure that's your problem. <laughs> well, you know, we just had an alum from one of my schools from, from Berkeley, Haas, uh, this guy, Sonny Balwani, right? Who Who's is Theranos. Uh, the, yeah, Theranos guy. And nobody at the school is bragging about him, right? And you know, he's, I mean, I feel like business schools ought to talk about, you know, their failures like that. They ought to be talking about Michael Milk and, and his missteps, right? They ought to be talking about Raj Rajarat on his, you know, missteps and, you know, how he went to jail and stuff, right? They shouldn't sort of downplay it. I mean, did you get that experience at, at school, right? Yeah, I guess Enron, Enron was the thing that sort of loomed very Yeah, that's right. Jeff Skilling, you talk about Jeff Skilling. Yeah, book. and then I think, so there were cases, but they were sort of largely buried, I think, by the time we, and then of course there was the financial crisis. There were lots of sort of HBS people kind of all over that one. So yes, people, they did talk about characters like that. But again, as you said, business schools will claim credit for their most famous alumni, but put a very large body of clear water between them and the, and the ones who go to jail. So perhaps the truth is, is that, you know, business school doesn't really create these people. Mm -hmm. You know, these people come with appetites, ambitions, greed, fundamental human natures. And Haas or Harvard or Kellogg or whatever a tuck put a little rocket fuel under it. But that's it. Mm -hmm. You know, these business schools are no, can no more claim credit uh, or discredit, if that's a word, for their actions than, you know, whoever taught them fourth grade piano. At the end of the book, Ahead of the Curve, you, after graduation, you went around and met with some of your classmates and kind of asked them to reflect. And, and there was a comment in the book about you speculating about your 10-year anniversary and, and what that would be like. And I think probably the most important thing is what you have kind of bouncing around your head 10 years after graduation or so. I mean, I run into some of my students from 10 years ago and, and ask them about their experience. Mm -hmm. And um, it's very different from what they say when they are in school. I had a cousin who went to West Point and I remember when I went to visit him at West Point and he said, oh, this place is absolutely terrible, you know? And then of course, after he graduated, it was like best years of my life. And so when you look back at the impact that kind of business school had on you, right? What's kind of left over, right? What's the residue? What is the the shadow or the diluted impact that it's had on you as well, a person? Well, I think in practical terms, you know, when I've, some of the 
work I've done since and some of the writing I've done, you know, I think people are always curious. I think in the way you are, it's like you're a journalist, but you went to business school and then, okay, that's an interesting little combination right there, which I think I was always interested in. So that I think has been beneficial. I did learn a lot about the language of business, the way things are done. You know, I can sit in meetings with people. And I remember one of the professors said, you know, the whole point of this is that nothing's going to go whizzing by you. You'll be able to sort of catch or hit most things that are spoken about in business. And that's been the case. I met a lot of fascinating people, good friends I made. The network is real and true. In many ways, yeah, I think it did take a veil down from part of the world that I understood only very poorly. You know, I had a very good grasp of, of politics and cultural things because of my natural interests. Business was kind of a mystery to me until I went to Harvard Business School. Aspects will remain a mystery to me, but many don't. When people talk in acronyms or about percentages or about their strategic goals, I kind of know exactly what they're up to. And that's been very helpful to me. There were ways of thinking I took that were very helpful. But yeah, and I think back on a lot of, you know, I did learn a lot. And that was, that was tremendously helpful. Did it make me richer, better, more noble, more virtuous, more, a more useful contributor to society? I don't know. But I learned a lot and met some great people. And I think that's, that's not a bad thing to come away with. Well, in your entrepreneurship book, you talk about the importance of cognitive complexity. You talk about this as an attribute which helps you become a better entrepreneur. But it seems like cognitive complexity is something that will help you kind of in all walks of, of life, right? Do you think that this is something that educational institutions should help people to develop? And if so, how could we do that? I mean, through, again, you were critical of the way in which entrepreneurship was taught. You thought that in order to be a teaching entrepreneurship, you need to kind of have some experience. In, in entrepreneurship is cognitive complexity and these other skills, you know, you also make a distinction between kind of declarative and procedural knowledge, right? Is, is cognitive complexity something that is part of this procedural knowledge that you kind of have to learn by doing, or is it some, is there some way that you can, you know, hone those skills in an educational environment? I mean, you know, entrepreneurship is, it's an interesting one. So if you take cognitive, well, let's call it curiosity or having lots of different ways of looking at the world by just knowing a lot about a lot of things. So the advantage there is you can make connections perhaps that no one else has seen, right? So, and I think I talk about, you know, Apple, Steve Jobs makes a connection between, you know, everyone is thinking devices and, um, you know, these long names and office parks where they're selling Best Buy devices. And he thinks about Apple sales rooms in terms of churches. He thinks about places in the middle of cities where people pass by at lunchtime and see other people like them all playing with these devices. So big glass walls, uh, first big shop, you know, right at the bottom of the GM building in the middle of Manhattan. And it's, you know, it's, you only have a thought like that if you're thinking about the world in a more complex way than everyone who's in the electronics business. And I think that is tremendously helpful. Now, can you teach that at business school? You know, I, I don't know. I had great professors who would recommend history books and art books and there were students there who had enormously rich intellectual lives and others who all they cared about was, you know, how much money they were going to be making next year and the year after that and their bonus. I'm not sure you can change those people. And there are also entrepreneurs who are just completely tenacious about one idea. You know, they want to, you know, set up the greatest chain of gyms in the world and they're not interested in your thoughts on Nabokov, right? So, and, and I think that's very true as well. So I think it, it varies, but I do think the idea of, for many of the kinds of people who go to good business schools who are thoughtful, intellectual people. Yeah, the more you know, 
the more opportunities you're going to see, the more interesting connections you're going to make, the richer your you know business probably will be. I think that is that is fun, broadly true, with some exceptions on either end. Uh, but I don't know how the liberal arts education, of course, undergraduate level is meant to be exactly that, right? Yeah. Now you talked in the end of the book about an idea you had for starting a business. Do you, do you ever think about kind of a different different life? Do you ever think, oh man, I, I, maybe I should have taken that McKinsey job or <laughs> you know that that Google interview? I should have I should have persisted with that you know Google interview. You know because you you wound up kind of going back to the world of writing, back to the world of journalism. Do you think about those other kind of paths that you know, Harvard could have sent Should you I on? Not with regrets, Greg. I sound like I've been to a Tony Robbins class. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. You know, I, I, it took a long time for me to shed the cynicism and skepticism I had as a journalist. And I think I actually still had it when I was coming out of business school, which didn't serve me very well. So I was probably going into these interviews with these incredibly, you know, lucky situations to have a McKinsey interview, Goldman Sachs, slightly with my journalistic attitude still around me, like a sort of bad smell. And, um, but you know, in the end you'd kind of do what you're drawn to, you know, there's no accident why you become a writer and you're drawn to that. And it's, you know, I did pretty well at it. So, um, no regrets on that front. You know, would I have, uh, enjoyed some, uh, 2006 Google options? Yes, Greg, I would have liked that very much, but, um, <laughs> would I have liked to have spent the last 17 years toiling away in ad search? I'm not sure. And so when you go back to your, uh, reunion. Do people refer to you? Oh, that's that's our journalist, right? Because well, you mentioned that you had this identity, very strong identity as a journalist. Uh, well, they, I think they think of me. Well, yeah, as a writer probably because I wrote the books. You know, I've, I've been a journalist before, and I've written, I wrote columns for the FT, and I don't do that really anymore. Yes, I think they do think of me as a, as a writer, but I, you know, I also hope, and I think we all of us who went through that experience together, we've all done hugely varied things. There are people from very different countries. And I think we're all sort of curious about each other. You know, so what I did is is really no different from people who've gone off and run large pots of money or been entrepreneurs or you know, had a great Russian friend who ended up running a fish processing factory in Minsk. I mean, you know, people have just done an enormous range of things. So me being a writer is kind of the least of it. Well, Philip, thanks so much. These books are fantastic. Um, this one, which you wrote for the School of Life, How to Think Like an Entrepreneur. I mean, incredibly small, brief, but super impactful. I'm probably going to sign this for one of my classes art of the sale which makes you rethink the whole importance of selling right as part of business part of life and of course ahead of the curve i know a lot of people who are considering getting an mba who read this first as a way of you know learning what it was like and in a world where you've got all these books like 1l and paper chase about law school there's not that many out here which describe kind of going to business school from the inside with an outsider's perspective. So I think this thing is going to be selling for years to come. So thanks so much, Philip, for joining me. Really appreciate it. We'll talk again soon. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.